Guys, we've been studying James' epistle, and it's a very important epistle. As you've already seen, we thank Barton and David for their talks these past two weeks. And we've seen how James is saying that we must not only be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. He's really stressing putting our faith into action. And last time we examined the first part of chapter 2 where he says one way in which his people needed to do that, we need to do it today, is showing no partiality among ourselves. Uh, based on wealth or possessions or prestige or racial preference or anything like that. There's to be no preferences given like that on human uh, categories within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all brothers and sisters. And James reminds them that it's the rich who've been oppressing them. Why are they going to show special deference to the rich? Well, we know why. Because you, you have this dream that if you can buddy up with rich people, you'll be one of them. Uh, and so you, you tend to then... Uh, minimize the significance of the human being sitting right next to you who is not quite so impressive, not quite so wealthy, and it's a violation of the law of God, the law of love. So James was talking in his own generation about those who are having their heads turned by the uh, allurements of power and money and how important it is for our own day. Now he goes on in the text that we're going to face today to talk about the very essence of this matter the relationship between faith and works. This is a crucial text, not only for the understanding of the nature of faith itself and how our Christian works come into play, but to address some of the same situations we face today. I hear it almost every day, some violation of the biblical idea of how faith and works work together. Uh, I, I see it in the people who claim to be professing Christians and yet want to violate all of the clear sexual mores that are in the Bible. It's amazing to me how they can profess with, with a, a, a look on their face of complete innocence that they're following the Lord Jesus Christ while they're violating every sexual morality principle that He's given us in the Bible. How they can take seven texts in the Bible that refer to uh, heterosexual versus homosexual practice and just turn it on its head and then look as innocent as a dove as they say they profess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's evil. And at the same time, we find people who say they're Christians, they profess to be Christians, and you know them in the workplace. They'll even use their Christianity to try to impress people. But they never seem to go to church, never seem to be interested. They may even say when asked, do you have anything to ask forgiveness for? No, not anything I can remember. Uh, and they, they go on and profess to be Christians, but there's nothing in their life that shows any semblance at all. And then you know some more subtle cases where people do do some things. They do go to church, they do profess to be Christians, but for heaven's sakes, the last person in the world, in the world you want to go on a vacation with would be those people. They're so narrow-minded and, and judgmental and unkind and ungenerous. And you think, something's wrong here. And at the same time, you've had people in your life just like I have mine who seem to start out in their Christian life with great enthusiasm and seem to be very zealous for things. And then three or four years later, they just kind of fall off the end of the earth. You, you never see them again. You don't know what's happening. And you say to yourself, how can that happen? I thought once saved, always saved. I thought that when a person became a Christian that they would persevere to the end. What's that all about? This is really confusing to me. Well, these same situations were happening in James' time. James is the brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, so he's a first-century man. He's a contemporary with all the other apostles, including the apostle Paul. And James' hearers have heard this gospel that Peter and Paul have clearly professed, both to Jew and to Gentile, that we are saved by our faith apart from works, that we are not saved based upon anything that we do that it's not our moral record in this life that's going to justify us and get us to heaven. They've all heard that gospel. And then some of them have taken that gospel and have perverted it and have drawn some inappropriate inferences from the gospel, which is like this. Well, if I'm not saved by my works, then who the heck cares? I'll just do whatever I want to. It doesn't matter what I do. And so the church can become what we call antinomian, that is anti-law. And as much as I admire Martin Luther, and I was just recently on a Reformation tour, so you know that I admire Luther with all of his major warts and sins in his life, and some of them were horrible. 
But nonetheless, he, he rediscovered some aspects of the gospel that are very important. But even Luther himself overreacted and he, he had no place theologically, it seems, when you read his commentary in Galatians, for the place of the law in our daily life. Luther's point was the law condemns us and once you become a Christian, the law has nothing to do with you anymore. It doesn't condemn you anymore. But we want to say to Luther, no, there's, there's more. You, yes, the law doesn't condemn you, but now the law becomes a very important part of your life as a believer. So if Luther overstated the case, and, and he was a, a theological genius in many ways, you can imagine how just us regular doofuses, how we're going to take things. Once we, Especially if we've come from a judgmental or moralistic background, if you come from a sort of fundamentalist, uh, censorious, moralistic family or church background, you are so glad to hear that you are saved apart from any of your works and nobody can do this to you anymore, and you tend then to throw the law aside. That happens to a lot of people who become Christians. They're so delighted with the grace of God and with being saved based on no performance of their own, they then throw out the significance of their own performance. James is here to correct us. And once again, back to Luther. In Luther's case, having seen the second use of the law, which is to lead us to Christ, he threw out the third use of the law, which is to provide a way for us to live as Christians. And because of that, you know what Luther said about the epistle of James? He called it that strawy epistle. You know why he called it that strawy epistle? Two reasons. Number one, the name of Christ only shows up twice in James. And that Luther thought that's not enough. You know, the gospel ought to be full of Christ. Well, it is full of Christ. This is the character of Christ. And when you see Jesus' teachings, you'll find them very similar to the teachings of a James. So I disagree with Luther on that. There's another reason that Luther thought it was a straw epistle, because of the text we're getting ready to read. He had no place in his own thinking for how the law is actively a part of our lives as Christians and actually must be part of our lives as Christians. We must be devoted to the law of God and to obeying Him. So James, make no mistake about it, James and Paul knew each other fairly well. You'll remember at the first general assembly, the, the council in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, Peter and Paul and others come reporting that the Gentiles are coming to Christ and Paul explains his gospel. Does Paul, make any, uh, does, does Paul leave any question about the gospel being based on faith alone through grace alone apart from the law? I mean, that's the way he puts it in Galatians 2.16 and Romans 3.27-28. He makes it really clear that our justification before God is through faith based on the extrinsic righteousness, the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. Paul explains his gospel. It's James who then rises up to say that we will embrace this gospel as these Gentiles are coming in. And then he quotes uh, Amos chapter 9 to say that this is the restoration of David's fallen tent. It's James who says this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, this gospel that Paul preaches to the Gentiles. So make no mistake about it. Paul and James are in, are in agreement. It's particular Christians who read one book or the other and then want to be in disagreement with each other. But James and Paul, James and Peter are in agreement. Knowing that that's the case, knowing that the Bible is the Word of God and God doesn't speak out of two sides of His mouth, He speaks univocally, He speaks truly. We sometimes get confused. There are many parts of Scripture that are difficult for us to understand, but God is truth. Let every man be a liar. So when we get His Word, we know that it hangs together. We actually have historical evidence in this case that these two authors were on the same page. So how can they be saying things that are seemingly contradictory, as you'll see when we read the text, and actually be in agreement? Well, I hope to show you this morning how you look at this text, just as we look at the Romans text of Paul, perhaps in a a better way than we would have otherwise because of James. So we thank God for all of His Word. We thank God for James. We thank God for this text. And if this presents some tension for you, well, good. That means you needed the tension. That means that you, probably your view of salvation was a little off, that you had not considered the law as carefully as you ought to have, and you really didn't have a very good answer 
for those who show enthusiasm for the Christian faith and three years fall off the edge of the earth? This ought to give you a better answer for what's going on there so we can see the, we can see the, the fullness of the Christian life as it pertains to both faith and the law. So let's look now at James chapter 2, this important text, and make our way through it and pray God will help us all not only understand better, but really have our faith enriched and broadened and deepened today as we study God's Word. Uh, James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, (coughs) if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that a faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And that scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, let's look at this in maybe three categories. First of all, I think in verses 14 through 19, we're going to learn that faith without works is useless. Faith without works is useless. First of all, in verse 14, it's useless because it does not save. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The obvious answer is that that James is suggesting is no, that faith does not save him. You say, how can that be? I thought that we were saved by a simple faith. You are. You're saved through faith. Simple faith. But if you see a poor person and only say to them, go in peace, and he's your brother or sister, and you do nothing to help them, can the faith that you say you have save you? James' obvious answer is no, it won't. You say, now you've really got me confused. I'm saying good, because now we're ready to look at the text and see what it actually says. There is such a thing as a faith of a sort that does not save. You say, could you give me an example? I say, thank you for asking. Turn to John John chapter 2. And let's look at this instance where Jesus had turned water into wine. And then we'll see the reaction of people who believed him. And then we'll see what Jesus says about them. Look at, uh, this is on page 2024, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Okay? There you go. So those people are saved. Hang on just a minute. They believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So they say they trusted Jesus. He didn't trust them because he knew their hearts. So they believed. What did they believe? Well, we don't know exactly what they believed. They believed something. 
They believed that Jesus had power. They believed that he was a special person. They may even have believed that he was God incarnate for that matter. But their faith was not a saving faith because God knew their hearts and their hearts were not really depending upon him. Let me give you three aspects of faith that theologians give us to help make our point. Saving faith includes three components, theologians teach us, and you'll see these in the Bible. So this is inferred from the Bible. Number one, faith includes a knowledge. The Latin word is notitia, N-O-T-I-T-I-A, notitia, the notes or the facts of the gospel. So faith includes a certain knowledge. You cannot be saved if you do not know who Jesus Christ is, if you do not know that He lived a perfect life on your account, if you do not know that He died on the cross for sinners and you receive Him. You do not have saving faith if you don't know that He's not only been resurrected, but He's still alive at the right hand of God and He's coming back to judge. Those are the simple facts that one must know in order to have saving faith. But that's not enough. And you see it there in that text that they knew certain facts about Jesus, but they didn't have saving faith. The second component of faith is called assent or ascensus in Latin, A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S, ascensus. Ascensus is an agreement to the facts. You not only know that the Bible is saying that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, you actually believe He did die for sinners. You not only know the fact that your teacher gave you that He was raised on the third day, you actually believe He was raised on the third day. You believe He's coming back again. That's assenting to the notitia. That's assenting to the facts of the gospel. That's the second component of faith. You must, you must believe, you must agree with the facts. But there's a third component of faith that's missing here, obviously, in John chapter 2. And that is what we call fiducia. You bankers will be familiar with that. The word fiducia in Latin just means to trust. So you have the facts You agree that they're true, but then you put your trust in them. The famous illustration that Jim Kennedy used to to use is this, that we all know this is a chair. There's the notitia. It's got legs, a seat, a back. Okay, we know that's a chair. That's notitia. So we have faith. This is a chair. Secondly, we agree, we have a scent, that this chair will hold somebody up. It certainly looks reliable, feels sturdy, and so we assent. This chair holds people up. But here's fiducia. You actually put your weight on the chair. You trust the chair. So you can have faith that this is a chair and never sit in it because you're afraid it'll fall apart. You can believe that airplanes will actually fly and get you to New York. But if you don't trust the plane, you're not getting on it yourself. So faith includes fiducia. And biblical faith can be used in a number of ways. You have to know the context as to whether all three components of faith are present. And here's what James is saying. Faith without works is dead. It's useless because it does not save. If you only have the notes of the gospel, if you only know the information, if you only believe that they're true points of fact, That is not saving. And there are hundreds and thousands of men in this city who know the facts. And many, many of them will say they believe they're true. And they are not saved. They're just as much under the condemnation of God as someone in the middle of the jungle who had never heard the gospel in the first place. In fact, they're under more judgment because they heard the gospel and have rejected putting their own trust in the gospel. So it does not save. That's the reason that it's useless. But secondly, look at verses 15 and 16. Not only does it not help you, it doesn't help anybody else. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, of course, 
this doesn't necessarily mean that every time you pass a guy who has a wine bottle in one hand and an open cup in the other sitting on the sidewalk that you should put several dollars in the cup so he can buy another bottle of wine. What it does mean is that when you have people in your own community, especially those who are brothers and sisters, they go to churches too. They can't get a good education. They can't get affordable housing. They can't be treated properly in the city, either by elected officials or by police officials or other officials. They can't find justice in the courts. When you find people who are brothers and sisters who are in need, it doesn't do any good simply to say, you know, you all just need to believe the gospel. Uh, we wish the best for you. Just know that we're praying for you over here in East Memphis, East Memphis, and uh, hope things go better on, on your end of town. Your faith is useless. It's not only not helping you, it's not helping anybody else. So what James is saying to his congregations who probably have been confused because they've grown up in a Jewish tradition that was very rigorous, very demanding, legalistic, and they were so glad to hear the, Paul, the Pauline gospel that they're delivered from all the burden of judgment, from all these rules and practices. And they just cast off the Christian lifestyle. They cast off the guide and light of God's law in our lives. They cast it off. And James is dealing with a congregation of people who are just throwing over the word of God as it directs their daily moral lives. Does this sound familiar to anybody? It's exactly what we're facing in the nominal church of our own day. Folks who want to claim to be Christian and they want to make up their own rules as they go. And it's just like when I was a kid. People wanted to be flag-waving Christians and exclude African Americans from their churches. It's an amazing thing. How could someone do that? Just stare God right in the face and sing a hymn and be a racist and try to justify it. And James says, no way. Your faith is useless. I was deeply moved just a few months ago when I heard Al Mohler, who is the president of Southern Seminary, you Baptists will know the name well, and Dr. Mohler was in a discussion uh, that I was moderating about race in the church today. And we listened very carefully to our African-American brothers, and Dr. Mohler didn't say a word until he was called on the end, and he just said, I'm just speechless. He said, I hardly know what to say. This, this is so tragic and so bad. I, I, I just feel like I don't have anything to contribute. And he said, you know, I grew up in little churches in towns. I think it was in Florida, he said. And I look back on my life and the way I was brought up in this completely white church that showed no concern for African Americans in our community. He said, honestly, right now, I question as to whether we were Christians. You could hear a pin drop. He's basically saying that the 1950s church that I grew up in may very well have been an unconverted church, even though we were preaching something that was true. So we were noticing the facts of the gospel. We were saying that they were true, but we were having nothing to do with their inferences, with their implications. Now, James would have a lot to say about that. He already did in, in chapter 2, didn't he? Showing no preference among your brothers and sisters. And boy, did we ever show preference. And he's basically saying this. Your faith is useless. It's like a big fat zero. So he's saying it does no good for you, it doesn't save you, and it does not help other people. Now I've listed several instances there in the New Testament. Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan. You know that story. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. You see when the church is under revival, really believing the gospel, what happens? They share their goods with everybody. They stop grasping on to, to try to get the most they can get for themselves. And they begin to concern themselves with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ whom they love. There's a radical transformation in the way that they're living in community. And that's what James is saying. That the really converted person, the one who has saving faith, has a transformed life. And that if this faith doesn't transform your life and bless the lives of those around you, you should ask yourself whether you have the real deal or not. Or could it be some superficial, counterfeit, substitute for saving faith? Could it be just notitia and a census? Is that possible in your case or the case of some of our family and friends? And James is addressing us with a, like a, a rapier 
a judgment with a sword that pierces right to our hearts and saying, we need to examine ourselves. And he's taking it all the way to the bottom line because he wants to be sure and get our attention. This is how serious it is when you dismiss the law when you dismiss obedience, when you dismiss the transformed life and you just want to be saved, James is saying that, won't, that doesn't happen. It's useless. So it's useless because it does not save and because it does not help others. But thirdly, it's dead, verse 17. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Guys, you can have the slickest, most beautiful Mercedes in your garage. You can have all the bells and whistles on the dashboard, the softest, plushest seats that just with a flick of the finger will you know, give you your beer or flip you back and rub your neck or I don't know, whatever those things will do you know, with all the buttons you've got on them. You can, you, know, you can turn on your TV and just fly away in your mind and your beautiful little Mercedes, but if your battery is dead, that car's going nowhere. Yeah, you got it. And here's what James is saying, that faith is the battery of your life. And if your battery is not on, your, your beautiful car, your body, your life, your possessions, all that you're managing, it's going nowhere. It's a useless vehicle. It's doing no one any good except for you to sit in it and pretend that you're going somewhere. So you're sitting in the garage and just happily driving your car, sitting still, and you turn your little key every once in a while and it just goes click, click, nothing. You're just, and you're just happy, happy in Jesus. You're happy to be, you can just drive wherever you want to in that beautiful car, so comfortable, and you're just sitting in your garage. And he said, that's what you're doing. Your faith is dead. Your battery is dead. It's gone. The car is useless. You need a real battery. So he says, that kind of faith is dead. But someone will say, he's listening, of course, he can anticipate congregations. You know, when you're teaching the Bible, gentlemen, those of you who teach small groups, teach Sunday school, some of you are preachers, uh, as Spurgeon says, you must always listen for the questions that are being asked. You know, Spurgeon used to say, I think I hear someone say. (laughs) And he could imagine what your objections were. So, for example, if I'm teaching on stewardship. I know what you're saying. Is it before taxes or after taxes? It's in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And i got to anticipate all those objections you're going to give me, and i got to answer every one of them to the best of my ability. Because I can hear you. I can hear you. I've been talking to you for, for 22 years. I can hear you. I know what you're thinking. At least some of it. James is the same way. He says, look at the way he sounds like Spurgeon. He says, but someone will say, I hear someone say, well, you have, James, you, you have faith. Uh, uh, and I, or I'm sorry, um, this man has faith and this one has works. You have faith and I have works. And here's James's answer. Okay, why don't you go ahead now and show me your faith apart from your works, okay? Just show it to me. Let's see, apart from works, just what I thought, invisible. And then he says, on the other hand, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. I'm going to love my wife, lay down my life for her. I'm going to love my children, devote myself to them. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to lift up my voice and worship God in worship. I'm going to be disciplined in my life. I'm going to be a generous person. I'm going to be kind to those who disagree with me. I'm going to be a man of principle and willing to face a hostility in this culture against the gospel. I'm going to do it kindly and lovingly. I'm not going to return evil for evil. That's how I'll show you my faith. That's what James is saying. So, yeah, you go ahead and show me yours. Now I'll show you mine. Now you tell me which one is useful. And he's saying the kind of faith that's invisible, that has no evidence to demonstrate that it is faith, is basically dead and useless. And it doesn't save. Can that kind of faith save anybody? No. It's a mirage. It's a pretend faith. People are playing games. They're in Disneyland. James says the real thing shows real results. Now, secondly, look at verse 19, and you get a major attack here on the uh, first and second only aspects of faith. I'll tell you what I mean. He says in verse, verse 19, okay, he's still attacking us. 
in our superficial faith. He says, so you believe that God is one. You, you do really well. Let me give you a standing ovation. You believe that God is one, and you believe that only God is the true God. Yay, congratulations. He says, let me introduce you to your brothers and sisters, the devils. Except they believe a little bit more than you do, because when they see what the gospel says, they shudder with fear at his judgment. You're not shuddering. You're smoking cigarettes, leaning back and drinking a few brews, and having a big old time in life. These folks over here, the demons are scared spitless. So they believe what you believe, but they really believe it better than you do. Here's what he's saying. The first and second aspects of faith, Notitia and Ascensus, are possessed by the demons. They know the facts better than you do. And they believe them to be true more than you do. The devil is a far better theologian than I am. I have my doubts every once in a while about this biblical theological principle or that one. Sometimes I struggle to try to understand it, sometimes even to believe it. They don't struggle to believe it. They believe every one of them. They believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. They, they believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. They have no question about it. They believe that when He died on the cross, Calvary's cross, that was a substitutionary, atoning death for undeserving sinners. They believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that delivered sinners from everlasting hell. They believe it. They have no doubt about it. They believe that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. They saw Him bodily resurrected. And they believe that 40 days later, He ascended to the right hand of God. And they believe without a doubt in their minds that He is ruling over the entire universe, including themselves. And they believe that He is surely coming back because they have seen Him fulfill every promise He made. And so they have no doubt in their minds that when He says, I'm coming back to gather my own people, that He's coming back. And when He says He's coming back to judge the wicked and the righteous, they believe Him implicitly. And they hate Him for it. They have no fiducia. But they have all the assensus that anyone could ever dream of. So if you think, your faith, which consists merely of knowing the facts of the gospel and believing they're true or saving you, you must believe the devils themselves are saved because that's exactly what they believe. And they believe it better than you do. That's his point. That faith without works is actually devilish. To know all that, that, all that the gospel says is true and then to sit on your butt and refuse to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory and dominion and power is absolutely devilish. So James is he's not fooling around, is he? He's, he's getting our attention, isn't he? He's saying that for you to live some sort of a pretend Christian life is demonic. It's useless to you, it's useless to anybody else, and it's an abomination before God to be a pretender and a hypocrite. So faith without works is dead. Now let's move on to the last section. And here, as you would expect, just as the Apostle Paul does, James says, do you want me to show you this from the Bible? I mean, of course, James' writing is the Bible. The apostles were, were aware that they were being inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were self-aware that they were giving us authoritative words. And James is aware, I'm sure, just as the other writers are but they will often refer to the Old Testament. You remember what Paul did in Romans chapter 3 when he was explaining that our righteousness before God, our justification, what makes us acceptable before Him, comes only through faith apart from the works that we do. What did he do? In Romans 4, you'll remember, he goes right to the Old Testament to prove it. And he talks about David, and he talks about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Well, looky here. James is saying the same thing. And without saying it, he's saying Paul and I are talking about the same thing. We're talking about faith. Paul's talking about one aspect of it. I'm talking about another aspect of it. And we're both going to use Abraham as an example and see what he does here. He says, "Was not?" Uh, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? <laughs> James sounds like he's a little angry. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, of course, this text has created massive amounts of dispute and confusion. And I admit that it's whatever answer you come up with, it's going to be subtle. Because when you look at it on the face of it, it appears as though he's saying something different from the Apostle Paul. Leave your, leave your finger in James 3 and let's go to Romans 3 and compare what's being said here. Paul says, uh, this is on page 2162. <coughs> Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 3 in Romans, after explaining that nobody can be saved based on their performance, the Jew, the Gentile, the ritual Jew, the ethical Jew, the ethical pagan, the slouchy pagan, none of them. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay? So you can obey the, try to obey the law all you want to, and you're not going to be justified by it. You're always going to fall short. You say, now I'm getting more confused. Well, let's keep reading. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jump down to verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. That is, why would you boast about your salvation if... You didn't earn it. It was given to you as a gift in toto. Why would you be boastful? He says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. By the law of faith. So Paul is showing you the two opposite ways of seeking to be saved, either by works and rituals and law-keeping and moral performance, or by simply trusting, putting your weight, fiducia, on Jesus Christ. And keep reading. He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Then look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? This is the verse I wish Martin Luther had taken more seriously. Do we therefore overthrow the law? That is, do we then say, well, the law now has nothing to do with me. Do we then therefore say, well, I need not give attention at all to the law of God. Do we therefore say, you know, obedience, personal obedience of morality is really insignificant once you've come to know Jesus Christ. He is your morality. That would be overthrowing the law. Paul says, do we do that? By no means. He uses very strong language. Heck no. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So how do you put these two together? Here's the way you think about it. The word justify can mean several things. In Paul's context in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, the word justify means to declare someone righteous. It doesn't mean that that person has become righteous. We know that's true because we're still in our sins. Uh, We're not condemned, but we're still sinners. But we are justified. We're declared righteous by God. That is justification in the way that Paul means it. We are found acceptable to God based not on our performance, but based on the performance solely of Jesus Christ, apart from the law, which is to say faith alone. Faith apart from the law. So what faith does, when God gives us saving faith, we lean and rest upon the work of Jesus Christ, His perfection alone. And that is what justifies us before God. Now, James is using justifying in a slightly different way. He's using justification in a legitimate linguistic way. It can be used this way. For example, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her works. That is, you'll know if a person has wisdom by what they do. Wisdom is justified by her children, by her works. And so the works of something 
justifies that it is wisdom. I hope you're following me. What James is saying is that your works justify your claim of faith so that therefore you are justified. Your your claim of faith in Jesus Christ is justified by demonstrating, showing your works that come out of your faith. Because here's what happens. When you, by faith, trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for your acceptance before God, that same faith is a battery that is full of voltage that leads to a changed life. Both of those aspects of faith are taking place at the same time. Just as you're trusting only in the works of Jesus Christ for your acceptance before God's throne of justice, that same faith is also leading you to trusting obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't love him, you wouldn't be a saved person. And if you don't love him, you won't keep his commandments. Do you see what I'm saying? So faith rests upon the alien righteousness of Christ, alien to yourself, intrinsic to Christ. That's what justifies you before the judgment of God. But then your faith is justified as it shows or demonstrates that your life is a working life. And if your life is not a working life, you do not have the faith that's resting upon Jesus Christ. Now that's quite different from the misunderstanding of some people who believe that they're justified before a holy God by adding to what Jesus did by doing some things that they do, either by participating in sacraments or feeding the poor or loving their wife or some other thing. There's a difference between those two things. James is not saying that. He's using justification in the way of showing our faith. And you can look with me back at James, and I think you'll see why we say this. Where am I? James chapter 2 was in James 4. He says, look at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith. And then he says in verse uh, 14, if someone says he has faith. So clearly James is talking about a person who says he has faith and who needs to show whether his faith is truly justified to be real saving faith. And he uses Abraham as an example. Now notice when he uses Abraham, he does, like Paul, quote Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So before Abraham had done anything good or bad, he simply believed the promise of God and righteousness was reckoned to him. So Paul uses that same verse to say, you see, Abraham was declared righteous by God through the simple act of trusting in God's promise. So Abraham was justified there. But then James goes on to say, but Abraham was justified by his works. What does he mean? He means that the faith in Genesis 15 is demonstrated to be a real faith in Genesis chapter 22. And what happens in Genesis 22? This precious designated son, this heir, Isaac, that God had given to Abraham according to promise, was now commanded to be offered as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Does this make any sense at all? You pray for this son, God gives you a son, you're delighted in your son, he's your heir, and now you must sacrifice him and give him up. Abram, you remember, arises early in the morning, not because he's eager, I'm quite sure it's because he couldn't sleep all night. He may as well get up. He gets up early in the morning, prepares the wood and the sacrifice, and takes Isaac along, and he says to the men, before he walks up Mount Moriah, he says, we're going up the mountain and we'll be back. Think about that. We will be back. So Abraham walked up that mountain to sacrifice his son, knowing that two people were going to come back. You say, how did he know that? That makes no sense. The writer of Hebrews gives you the explanation. Abraham believed in the resurrection to everlasting life. He believed that God could raise people from the dead. 
Because God had promised him an heir who would become the leader of a nation. He believed that. And he also was going to obey God and do what he said. So God, it's God's problem. I'm just simply going to obey God. It's his problem to work out the promises. But I believe the promises, even though they make no sense to any of my family, make no sense to Isaac. Isaac is saying, where's the sacrifice? And all Abram could say is, God will provide. And God did with a ram in the thicket. And the angel withheld the arm of Abram before he was ready to sacrifice his son. And they put the ram on the altar to be a substitute for Isaac. And God did provide 2,000 years ago on Calvary's tree. And there was one that God provided as our sacrifice. How is it that a just God who must condemn every sin can draw sinful brothers to himself? How can this possibly be? I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, but I know this. God promised it. And then when the Bible revealed what actually happened, now I see it. It was His own Son that He provided. As a sacrifice, it was a substitute for me and for you. And that's how He both maintained the terror of His justice and maintained the profundity of His grace. He did it at Calvary's cross. And James is saying, don't you see? This is of the very essence of faith. This is the faith that justifies a faith that is justified by its works. In other words, we as, as theologians often say, we are saved through faith alone, but not through a faith that is alone. Real saving faith is always accompanied by works. And so James can say, can't you see it? That your whole Christian life is justified by works. People know that you're a Christian by your works. You show me your faith apart from your works, I'll show you my faith by my works, he says. So he's saying that faith without works is useless because it does not save, it doesn't help others, it is dead, it is actually demonic, and it's unbiblical, especially when you consider Abraham. Let me quote, not Martin Luther, but John Calvin on this same text. Here's what Calvin says about it. Calvin says, what then, this is in the apparent contradiction between James and Paul. Calvin says uh, in his commentary, no, this is in the Institutes. He says, what then? It appears certain that he is speaking of the manifestation, not of the imputation of righteousness. As if he had said, those who are justified by true faith prove their justification by obedience and good works not by a bare and imaginary semblance of faith. In one word, he is not discussing the mode of justification, but requiring that the justification of believers shall be operative. And as Paul contends that men are justified without the aid of works, so James will not allow any to be regarded as justified who are destitute of good works. So both are true. We said from the beginning, God's word is true. Let every man be a liar. We know that James and Paul are in agreement. They believe the same gospel. They're emphasizing two different aspects of this gospel. Paul is talking about how we're justified before God. James is talking about how we're justified before men, if you will. In other words, how do you demonstrate your faith? How would anybody know that you really believe your faith is justified by your works? There's a sense in which you're justified by those around you, by your works, not just faith alone. That's the teaching of James, and that's the reason that it's so important. And you'll see, even with Rahab, verses 25 and 26, he takes up this amazing case. Abraham was a man, Rahab was a woman. Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Ahab was, Abraham was generally an upright man and Rahab was, was a prostitute. She was a madam of the, of the whorehouse. And the spies, you'll remember, spying into the, the Holy Land before they invaded it, they went to her house and were looking for refuge. And here's what she said. She said, I know that your God is the real God. I know what he did in dividing the Red Sea. I saw what he did in defeating the other armies. I know that you're God. You see, she had faith. And what did she do with that faith? She hid the spies. And the only deal she made with them is that I want to be spared as well. Well, of course, her faith saved her. 
She had faith in the promises of God, faith in the character of God. And so there was a little scarlet rope right outside her window that went down the wall. And when the walls came crashing down, all Jericho was destroyed except for Rahab. She was saved by faith, a Gentile, one who wasn't included among Israel. But James is saying, you see, Rahab's faith was demonstrated. Even with her previously wicked life, everybody could see there was a difference in her. She had given her life to Jehovah, the God of Israel. The same with us. So James is saying, are you concerned about some of your friends who on one hand seem to be so enthusiastic and so zealous, maybe some of them were brought up in the church and then they go off the deep end. Here's what you need to consider. Maybe they never had saving faith in the first place. Because saving faith is always accompanied by works. Faith is always demonstrated by its works. Real faith hears the law of God and bows the knee and asks God to move us into obedience as imperfect as we are. That's the reason we continue to confess our sins as believers because we want to follow the law of God and we're still failing to do it perfectly. So we're continually living a life of confession and a life of repentance. And that's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be really saved is that you're not just saved from the judgment to come, but you're being saved from the corruption of the world and the flesh and the devil around you. You're in the process of being transformed as well as looking forward to acquittal on the great day of judgment. Salvation and faith and the law of God are awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Christian life for calling us into it, and for giving us grace to open our hearts to Your promises. And just as we open our hearts with gratitude to Your promises, may we open our hearts and minds and wills to the guidance of Your law. May we find how beautiful Your law is. As David said, it is sweeter than honey. No, sweeter than the honeycomb itself. It is purer than gold. It's more valuable than the greatest gems and diamonds in the universe. This law that shows us how to draw near to you and how to be useful in life. And so we pray that you'll change our hearts from those of indifference and apathy to those of zealous obedience because we love you and are so deeply grateful for your having justified us purely and solely upon the work of another, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.